If you're interested in the goddess Babylon and how her representation has evolved across history, and in the role of the feminine and femininity in Telema, as well as in the role of the Scarlet Woman, stay tuned, because you're just about to find out. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Angela Puca and welcome to my symposium. I'm a PhD and a university lecturer and this is your online resource for the academic study of magic, esotericism, shamanism, paganism, telema and all things occult. Today I have a very special guest here on the channel which I'm very excited to introduce to you and her name is Dr. Manon Hiedenburg-White. She is a senior lecturer in religious studies at Karlstad University and obtained her PhD in history of religions at Uppsala University. Her doctoral dissertation, The Eloquent Blood, The Goddess Babylon and the Construction of Femininities in Western Esotericism, was published by Oxford University Press last year. This is a fantastic book that I highly recommend and will leave the link in the info box. In the past two years, she was funded by the Swedish Research Council as a postdoctoral fellow at Söderton University and was also a guest researcher at the Center for History of Hermetic Philosophy and Related Currents at the University of Amsterdam. Her postdoctoral project explored the roles of women in Aleister Crowley's religion of Telema. So, are you excited yet? <laughs> this is going to be a fantastic interview, so please help me in welcoming Dr. Manon Hedenborg-White. Hello, Manon. How are you today? <laughs> Hello, Angela. Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Um, how are you? I'm okay. I'm super excited to have you here. Thank you so much for accepting to be on the symposium. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> I already mentioned in the intro your fantastic book, which, by the way, I really like the, the title, The Eloquent Blood. It's very graphic but to me it's like <laughs> in a good way <laughs> I thank you graphic titles you know that sort of uh instill a certain emotion uh tend to stick better uh with yeah you. yeah yeah definitely um yes uh i like the title as well i uh to me it just kind of when i was digging around for something and i was reading bits of, of poetry and, and various pieces of writing and it just kind of sprung out at me and I was just sort of like, yes, that works. Okay, what can we do uh, with this? So, so yeah, thank you for saying so. <laughs> so I guess then my first question will be on the goddess Babylon, um, mm -hmm. you know, her um, role in history and how that changed over time and her role in Western historicism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so obviously, of course, big question. Uh, lots of different parts to this answer, potentially. But um, to put it like quite simply, Babylon is a goddess and, and one of the most important deities within the religion Thelema, which, of course, was founded by British occultist Alistair Crowley in 1904. Um, Crowley came out of a uh, dispensationalist evangelical 
biblical background. So he he studied the book of Revelation from a very young age. And Babylon is quite strongly inspired by Crowley's uh, favorable sort of uh, reinterpretation or, or counter reading, one might say, of the biblical horror of Babylon. So in the book of Revelation, of course, the whore of Babylon is this antagonistic figure. She is this uh, majestic, drunken, uh, libidinous woman riding astride the beast. But in Crowley's rendering, she is, of course, a positive figure and a soteriological figure. And she represents, uh, in essence, the, the magical formula of, of passionate union with all aspects of existence. And uh, more simply put, she's also um, an, a sort of embodiment of the sacredness of the liberated sexual impulse and perhaps especially the, the feminine or the female um, liberated sexual impulse, one might say. So, so yes, but um, so Babylon first. Uh, and I, I, I want to say just something very briefly about kind of uh, my approach to this topic as well and uh, and about methodological agnosticism in this vein also. So when I'm lecturing about this topic, um, I get a lot of questions like, is, is Babylon... Uh, is there a concordance between Babylon and Lilith or are Babylon and Kali the same in entity or are Babylon and Inanna or Ishtar or Astarte or these various uh, goddesses or, or spirits or, or angelic or demonic or chthonic feminine figures from across the world that seem to have in common this kind of uh, connection between uh, sex and death and aggression and power and female power and all these things. Like, are they the same entity? I get that question a lot. And I think that's perfectly valid. That's a perfectly valid question to ask from an emic point of view. So from the point of view of uh, insider belief and practice. But of course, the way that I'm looking at this is in this very dry, boring, historical way, which is we're not looking for whether or not these are the same entities, but we're looking for uh, actual documentable, verifiable chains of historical transmission. So the way that I'm looking at this figure is as, uh, as a conceptualization of a goddess under that specific name. And in that form, the story of Babylon starts kind of properly with Alistair Crowley, even though Crowley, of course, drew on a lot of older sources. So, but like from my historical point of view, that's uh, that's the way that story is going to be is going to be told. So, Crowley Crowley's first uh, vision of Babylon or, or experience magically with Babylon was really in in 1909. So she doesn't appear in the Book of the Law from 1904. There's a reference to uh, the figure of the Scarlet Woman which is related, and I know we're gonna get back to that. And there's also uh, the, the goddess that does appear in the Book of the Law is the goddess Nuit, who represents the uh, totality of, uh, of existence and the night sky, and who is the sort of main character or the speaker of the, the first chapter of the Book of the Law. And there's a brief reference to Nuit having a secret name or a hidden name, and Crowley later came to, um, identify that name as Babylon. And that is, uh, that's based on um, an experience that he had in 1904 when he was traversing the desert of Algeria with his uh, current lover and magical disciple, the poet Victor B. Neuberg. 
And they were exploring the Enochian magical system or the system of the uh, the ethers, which were, um, so the Enochian magical system, of course, which was developed by uh, John Dee and, and Edward Kelly during the Elizabethan age. And Crowley and Neuberg were intending to scry all of the ethers one by one. And uh, so, one night, uh, Crowley entered into the 12th ether and he sees this vision of a, uh, a great woman astride a great beast. And he realizes that this is this is Babylon. This is Babylon the Great, basically. And uh, he later changes her the spelling of her name from the, uh, the biblical or, or like the conventional Babylon to the B-A-B-A-L-O-N that has become the uh, canonical thelemic spelling but Crowley Crowley during this time he was undergoing this magical ordeal which is one of the penultimate stages in his magical system and which he refers to as the crossing of the abyss so having climbed up the the tree of life um and this is Crowley's uh magical system as uh structured within his magical order AA, which held kind of a golden dawn based structure up to a certain, uh, with Crowley's own um, flair added to it. So, so after like building and developing the self, the adept arrives at a point where they have to um, traverse this, this terrifying void, which is the abyss, which separates the, uh, the manifest from the numinous or on the tree of life separates the three uh, topmost Sephiroth, uh, Kether, Hokma, and Bina from the lower seven. And in order to do so, Crowley believed the adept had to utterly annihilate their individuality, totally kill and sacrifice their ego and become completely receptive uh, to all of existence. And only by doing so could that person kind of die and be reborn on the other side. And uh, Babylon is... Uh, is very strongly linked to this process. So Crowley talks about draining your blood into Babylon's cup and being reborn through her womb. But he also, so he describes this as a kind of a sort of mystical death and rebirth, but he also describes it in uh, sexual terms, in terms of, um, and I think I'm paraphrasing or I might be quoting directly, but an ecstasy in which there is no trace of pain, like the giving up of the self to the beloved. Uh, is how he writes about it as well. So in that sense, Babylon, um, the sexual, the very strongly sexual components of that, uh, of her as a symbol and as a figure are also related to this idea of complete surrender of, uh, of the self. So that's really where Crowley's uh, um, idea of Babylon as, as a goddess starts to, uh, starts to take form in 1909. And he, of course, wrote lots more about this figure. And he, of course, wrote uh, lots more in terms of the idea of the Scarlet Woman as well. One of the ideas that he understands the Scarlet Woman, but we'll get back to this, is as the earthly uh, avatar or embodiment of, um, of the goddess Babylon. But yes, um, so long, uh, long, long, long monologue here. And this takes us up to the point of, um, Crowley, basically. But uh, of course, Babylon has gone beyond Crowley, we might say. So 
uh, one of the really important people in the 20th century history of Babylon was uh, was Crowley's disciple John Whiteside Parsons, who was um, one of the earliest adopters of, of Thelema in the United States, who joined the Agape Lodge of Ordo Templi Orientis in the early 1940s. Um, but who quite quickly developed a sort of experimental um, experimental take on magic, which was very much in line with his personality. He was, of course, one of the pioneers of rocket science as well. And he started in 1946 doing a series of rituals which were aimed at producing the earthly manifestation of the goddess Babylon. And as many of uh, the viewers will know as well, he was very famously aided in this endeavor by L. Ron Hubbard, the future founder of Dianetics and Scientology, and also by Marjorie Cameron, who was Parsons' lover, and uh, they would later get married, but also an illustrator and uh, an artist. So they were trying to produce the earthly uh, incarnation of Babylon, and, and Parsons had his own kind of added his own uh, interpretation of this figure as well, which was much more kind of socio-politically oriented. So this was in uh, the era of um, kind of post-World uh, post War II, but uh, early Cold War days and the emerging uh, era of McCarthyism and uh, increasing social control in, in various areas or, or what Parsons perceived as such anyway. So he saw Babylon as kind of this uh, very warrior-like revolutionary feminine messiah who would descend to earth and liberate all of humanity and uh, would liberate women who would then help to uh, liberate all of humanity and, and bring about this age of, of Dionysian freedom and love and social justice and uh, and all of these things. And um, so he kind of brought his own uh, flair to this idea, a more sort of concrete figure in a lot of ways. He also touched on the crossing of the abyss stuff, definitely, but he emphasizes a more kind of um, anthropomorphic figure in, in some ways, who's gonna descend to earth and kind of, um, fixed society in a lot of different ways. But he also uh, envisioned Babylon partly as as kind of uh, a force or, or an idea or, or like a symbol for for a kind of energy that could also be incarnate in, uh, in anyone regardless of gender and which is kind of linked to this sort of rebellion against uh, oppressive authorities and sexual freedom and, and all of these things. So the the third person who's written a lot about this uh, this figure in in like the the kind of uh, in the twentieth century is of course Kenneth Grant who was uh, so moving back to Britain who was uh, an occultist as well of course and who was Crowley's secretary very late in Crowley's life and who uh, was initiated into the ninth degree of Crowley's OTO, but who was also an initiate of uh, Indian left-hand path Tantra, so what Grant refers to as the Varna Marg, and who, so Kenneth Grant had this idea of a, um, a primordial uh, religious tradition or a mythical, um, mystical tradition that he believed to have originated in prehistoric times in in central Africa but which then migrated to Europe uh, to 
sorry, to Egypt, um, and which was characterized by a uh, sort of stellar lunar cult of the, um, what he referred to as uh, the goddess Typhon and her bastard son Set, and which Grant believed centered on the veneration of the female sexual organs and of um, female genital fluids. And he then believed that this, uh, this what he called the Typhonian tradition or the Typhonian cult was driven underground uh, by solo worshippers and then uh, kind of flourished in the, the uh, tantric traditions of, um, of South Asia and Southeast Asia. And uh, Grant saw Thelema as, as kind of a tantra for the West and as kind of an, an iteration of this uh, this very ancient uh, primordial cult as well, but he believed that Crowley got one thing very fundamentally wrong about um, about sexual about sexual worship, because Grant saw the left hand path of tantra as being characterized by the deliberate use of trained female sexual priestesses, and of course. Um, Crowley also like a fundamental portion of um, Crowley's magical practice and teachings was the practice of sexual magic. Uh, but in Crowley's uh, kind of version of sexual magic, the male, uh, the masculine genital fluids or the semen play a very important role. And uh, Crowley in um, several of his most important sex magical writings kind of identifies the semen with the directing magical will that um, that fuels a magical operation. And, and Grant basically says that Crowley got this wrong and it's not the male partner, it's actually the female sex magical partner. And he uses the term Babylon to refer variously to the trained female sex magical priestess, but also to the divine feminine force, which is kind of at the root of um, everything in which Grant sees uh, Babylon, uh, or the Scarlet Woman, as he also calls her, as uh, or the priestess, as as kind of an incarnation of. Her. So that's interesting, and that's something that I think that, and I say this a lot, but I actually I don't think it gets said enough. Uh, Grant was actually quite um, early, or or one of the earliest people to formulate this sort of explicit critique of male centrism in Crowley's system of sexual magic and he wasn't he wasn't doing it from like a feminist point of view or, or what we'd see as a feminist point of view today necessarily but I think it's interesting that it was happening at the same time as when when Kenneth Grant wrote his books on the uh the Typhonian tradition and uh, the nine uh, so-called Typhonian trilogies the first of which comes out in the early 1970s. Uh, that's like when everything is happening kind of with the second wave of feminism. Uh, so I think that's interesting, uh, even if Grant wasn't drawing explicitly on those second wave ideas, it's kind of at the same time as, as that is happening and as also kind of feminist witchcraft or feminist wicca is, is kind of emerging as well. So, so that's interesting. And, um, and yes, but this has, of course, continued and these ideas have continued to kind of spread. And in the uh, in the occult milieu of the last few decades, one thing 
that is really important and has been really important to the way that Babylon is understood is that there has been uh, like an increasing proliferation of, of women as, as writers on occult topics and also within Thelema and also specifically on the goddess Babylon. So from starting in the early uh, 1990s, we have a number of texts that have come out which have been authored by women or queer practitioners and which have been really important in uh, rephrasing this uh, this symbol in various ways today. So what we see um, today, and this is this is within Thelema, kind of within Thelema proper, but um, the symbol of Babylon or the figure of Babylon has also very much been taken kind of outside of, of uh, orthodox uh, Thelema into like a broader kind of esoteric or occult landscape. So we see kind of the, uh, what Crowley wrote kind of um, rubbing shoulders with interpretations which draw quite heavily on uh, feminist thinking or, or queer feminist thinking and uh, quite a lot of uh, contemporary interpretations of Babylon which link her very strongly to the idea of of female liberation or LGBTQ liberation of um, uh, sexual minorities or like non-normative sexual practices or things like sex work and uh, seeing these these people seeing Babylon as kind of being a champion of uh, of all of these things so so yeah so so long 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 answer to that question but um, what I think is interesting just to put it all in a nutshell is that Babylon if we are to trace her history and her place in uh, contemporary esotericism is that we have an example here of a figure who originates very much as a negative as a negative stereotype within uh, the book of revelations in the bible as this very demonized sort of figure and and whether or not it's the same figure this kind of uh, i don't want to say archetype because that has a lot of connotations that i don't necessarily want to bring into this but um but kind of that keeps coming back over the last 2000 years which is kind of the the bad girl or the slut or the whore or the harlot or the temptress and who who comes back kind of as uh as a femme fatale in the victorian era for instance and which within Thelema gets uh inverted and transformed into this very positive symbol of um completely shameless, unabashed feminine sexual desire and lust and passion and uh, empowerment and all of these things. And uh, in the contemporary period gets even transformed in in some iterations into a sort of feminist symbol. So, so I think that's interesting. Mm. Yes, very much so. And how come Babylon specifically has been considered, you know, the symbol of all of these uh, feminine elements and aspects? Mm, mm. Um, it's, well, that's, that's a good question. I think there is, I mean, the history of, of Babylon as an idea, kind of starting with, with Crowley's sort of inversion of this negative figure from the Bible. I mean, it parallels with that of other figures as well. So like what's happened to the idea of the witch, for instance, in the last uh, 
in the last 100 years, maybe, which uh, of course has been this very loaded negative figure in the public imagination as well, but was reclaimed and embraced and kind of um, taken up as a symbol of, of resistance. Uh, it, I mean, it also parallels with, of course, uh, like the development of, of modern Satanism, although those are very distinct traditions, but but still there's like a an overlap in, in the way that these kind of figures are taken up. So I think that's one uh, instance of it. And of course, like the history of the word queer as an identity, for instance, like there's something... Uh, I mean, I think that if you want to kind of uh, express that you're against the prevailing order in some way, uh, a very powerful way of doing so and a very successful way of doing so a lot of the time is taking something that the prevailing order says is evil and then uh, being like, I'm going to embrace this and I'm going to say that this is good and I'm going to put this on a pedestal and in a place of, of sacredness instead. So that that's very... I think that's a very powerful form of kind of um, empowering, kind of yeah, <laughs> kind of symbolic, yeah, symbolic resistance. Um, of course, I mean, of course, that's 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 a very sort of um, I don't know sociological, anthropological way of of answering that question. Like, uh, of course, there are there are other. There are other possible responses to that um, question as well. I think another issue, which I think is really kind of doesn't get said enough as well, is that like during during Crowley's uh, early years and and his life, so kind of the Victorian Edwardian period, like there really, especially kind of around the fin de siècle, there really weren't very many kind of positive images of female sexual power during that time. The uh, You either had kind of the, the femme fatale images, which were largely kind of... Um, a, a cautionary tale sometimes. <laughs> yes, like, yes. Exactly. She always ends up... <laughs> yes. Usually yeah. they meet sticky ends, and although they kind of were empowered figures, some of them they were like written or, or painted a lot of the time from like a slightly or, or majorly misogynistic viewpoint. So that was like a negative, that was a negative idea. And even within like the first wave of feminism, um, first wave feminists tend to take a quite pessimistic uh, outlook on sexuality as well. And were more concerned with kind of protecting women from uh, the dangers connected to sexuality, which was really important during that time as well, with uh, sexually transmitted diseases, with uh, raising the age of consent and uh, fighting for sex workers' rights during that time as well. But uh, also like that kind of early first wave of feminism also wasn't hugely concerned with women's right to kind of uh, say yes to sexual desire and sexual pleasure. So, so having that sort of imagery at that time that was quite rare and quite radical to have, like not only um, an image of, uh, like because because when like most of the the people who were kind of more sex positive within kind of the early first wave of of feminism were kind of 
like the extent that they'd go to was sort of, you know, if it's uh, marital, if it's monogamous, if it's reproductively oriented, if it's heterosexual, then it's okay. It might even be good. But to have someone saying that, you know, in fact, uh, all of the transgressive, all of the anti-normative things uh, are not only not only fine and acceptable, but they're actually sacred. And that like for a woman to be uh, promiscuous or to be non-monogamous or to be engaged in sex just for the mere pleasure of it, that was very that was very radical at that time. So I think that's um, I think that's quite a powerful that's quite a powerful idea as well. And I think it still is in a lot of ways. Obviously, like a lot has uh, changed and uh, people today or, or people who identify as, as women or as femme today face uh, very different kind of uh, social uh, mores than, um, than did women at the beginning of the 20th century. But I think uh, I think in a lot of ways that that idea is still relevant and uh, more more radical today than than one might think. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I I really liked your your answer and your explanation of how reclaiming a derogatory term or a term associated with something considered to be evil yeah. is a way of reclaiming and uh also co contrasting the dominant system yeah. and that also happens with paganism paganism yes. uh, also started out as yeah. you know pagan started out as a derogatory term and in, in that case as well you do have a progressive reclamation of that uh, of that term as being sacred yeah so it's fascinating to me how something considered you know, uh, evil or transgressive or forbidden can be elevated to the status of sacredness. That is a, mm. a very interesting, mm. um, you know, evolution yeah. that you see in Western historicism. Not, yeah. Perhaps not just with Babylon, but with other things as well. Yeah, no, I think so. Definitely, definitely. It has a lot of different parallels and also just kind of inverting. One of the things I think is really uh, interesting as well. Lots of things are interesting. Um, but like one of the ways that I got into researching this topic was that one of um, I was when I was an undergraduate, I was I took a course on religion and sexuality. And I got to write a paper for that. And the paper that I wrote was I just kind of I like I'd, I'd quite recently sort of stumbled into studying esotericism. But this was within history of religions. And the paper that I wrote for that was uh, a comparison of the Virgin Mary and the goddess Babylon as different kind of images of, of femininity. And um, that paper's not available uh, anywhere, for which we should all be very grateful, I think, because I don't, uh, I'm sure it wasn't very good. But I think that that sort of idea has kind of, uh, has kind of stuck with me as well, because I think that's interesting, just this idea of like the Madonna whore dichotomy or this sort of binarization of femininity and how a lot of the time was like it's it's I mean it's the Madonna who is seen as like the good the good girl and it's the whore who's the bad girl and and what happens in Thelema is that really like the bad girl gets uh 
not not like not redeemed, not turned into a good girl, but like embraced basically. And that is um, that is interesting, I think, and uh, and radical in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what about um, the element of the feminine and the understanding and perception of femininity in uh, Telema, mm -hmm. the religion yeah. of Telema? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, big question as well. So, so of course, like one of the things uh, that are really important are, uh, so in, in Libra of Allegis or in the Book of the Law, which is, uh, which, as I've said, Crowley penned in 1904 and is like the foundational sacred text of the Lima, that text is divided into three chapters, as I've mentioned, and the, the who are like um, kind of spoken or, or narrated by three separate divine entities. And the first, the speaker of the first chapter is the goddess Nuit. So she's feminine and she is kind of within like the core sort of polemic pantheon. She is kind of the, the utmost, the highest manifestation of the feminine divine. And then there's the second chapter, which is spoken by the god Hadith, who is kind of uh, the lover and, uh, and masculine um, polarity, uh, who kind of unites with uh, with Nuit. So in that, uh, in that polarity, Nuit represents the totality of experience and everything that is kind of external to us and everything that uh, as we go through life and we experience it, that we seek to unite with. And Hadith is kind of that um, infinitely condensed core or life force of each person that seeks union with Nuit. And uh, the symbol of that union or the, the product of that union as it's conceptualized in the book of the law is the god Rahul Kuit, who is a form of the god Horus and who is kind of described as male, but also really androgynous in a lot of Crowley's uh, reasoning around that figure. So one important thing there is I think that, that like the goddess Nuit is kind of in one way, arguably kind of the uttermost representation of the divine that is external to the individual within the Lima. So, so like the divine feminine is tremendously important. And uh, of course, Babylon, as I've said, Crowley uh, interpreted this reference to Nuit's secret, uh, secret or hidden name in the Book of the Law as a reference to Babylon. So we might say that Babylon is kind of the earthly sexual representation of Babylon, of, of Nuit, or, or kind of the representation of the divine feminine for, uh, for this particular aeon that Crowley believed uh, started with the reception of the Book of the Law and um, which he refers to as the aeon of Horus. So, so the divine feminine is, is kind of very hugely uh, important in, in Crowley's kind of explication of uh, the Lima. And I think it's also important to say that it's like, there's been quite a lot of research on uh, the occultism of the fantasy echo and uh, especially in, uh, in, in England and of uh, women being really formative to movements like theosophy or spiritualism also in North America or, or to the Golden Dawn, for instance. And I think that that also holds true of the magical orders that Crowley uh, founded or was involved in. So the AA, which he founded or, or co-founded in 1907, and also, of course, Ordo Templi Orientis or the OTO, which Crowley became involved in uh, 
properly in, in 1912. And, and women have always been important to those magical orders, which are still around today, of course, and which we'll, I believe we'll get back to as well. So, for instance, during Crowley's uh, uh, lifetime, one of his uh, love magical partners, uh, Leila Waddell, was the Grand Secretary General of OTO for Britain, uh, one of Crowley's other lovers, and uh, also one of his Scarlet Women was the Grand Secretary General of OTO in uh, the 1920s. She was also the pre-monstratrix, one of the uh, three governing positions in Crowley's AA. Uh, there were also people like uh, Crowley's student and very, very long term friend, Jane Wolfe, who uh, studied with him in Europe in the 1920s and went back to uh, to North America in the late 1920s and kind of uh, played a very instrumental role in, in setting up what became the Agape Lodge, which Jack Parsons would later join and which was the only active OTO body uh, existing in the world at the point of Crowley's death. And, and so Jane Wolfe was was absolutely instrumental to that. And, and uh, there have been others as well. Um, Jack Parsons's first wife, Helen Parsons Smith, and also uh, Phyllis Seckler, who uh, both of whom were involved within the Agape Lodge as well, and who were uh, who were really essential to, to kind of uh, preserving and helping to reestablish uh, the OTO in in the US. So and, and this I feel like this doesn't get said enough also because there's this kind of pervasive narrative like when we talk about theosophy and we talk about spiritualism and we talk about the golden dawn we say that women were really empowered in those movements and there's this pervasive uh, narrative around Crowley which says that he was uh, he was a massive sexist and that he exploited and destroyed all of the women in his life. I was just and, about to ask you that, so I'm happy that you're recording it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's uh, I think that that narrative is really unhelpful, and it's also uh, a pretty serious misrepresentation of the reality and. It's one of those narratives that kind of wants to masquerade as feminist. And I actually find it quite the opposite uh, because a lot of the time the narrative around women like Rose Kelly, uh, Crowley's first wife, or Leah Hersig, his, uh, his most influential scarlet woman in the 1920s, is that uh, they were kind of drawn in by Crowley who then exploited and destroyed them. And... It, does, it doesn't do these women any favors and it's not historically accurate either. What is like what we can see for the historical Thelemic movement, much as it was for Theosophy or for the Golden Dawn, is that most of the women who were drawn to Crowley were unconventional in their own right, of course, because otherwise they wouldn't be drawn to this sort of movement. They were um, a lot of them were sort of quite close to this idea of uh, the new woman, which was popular in um, in certain branches of feminism in the early 20th century. So they were people who who worked for a living, who got married late or not at all, who had children outside of marriage, who had many lovers, who traveled, who studied, who smoked cigarettes and wore trousers and rode bicycles and, and all of these things and who uh, went back to doing so after after being with Crowley. So this uh, this narrative of uh, 
of Crowley and his poor exploited women is, uh, for me, it's it's uh, it's extremely unhelpful, and and it doesn't like it doesn't accurately represent how these women actually lived their lives, and most of whom went back to having very long lives with other lovers and other marriages and other forms of um, spiritual and occult practice in in different ways. All of that being said. Um, we do have fewer preserved writings that are sort of of a theological nature or, or pertaining to magical theory by early women Thelemites than by their male contemporaries. And I think there might be several reasons for this. One of the reasons is in some cases we know the sources have simply been lost. There are a lot of writings by Leah Hersing which appear not to have survived. So that's one. Uh, that's one factor. Uh, another factor is that uh, I think in some ways that the early Thelemic movement was also a product of its time. So I think that um, there are certain things to suggest that the women in the movement were expected to take on a larger share of um, kind of the day-to-day -day organizational stuff. So the cooking and the, the shopping and the child rearing and the finances and not maybe the same expectation that they would produce uh, large quantities of, of kind of theoretical or theological writing. So, so I think that, that that was kind of a factor as well. And uh, I think looking at the historical role of women in Palima, it's, uh, it's important to acknowledge both of those things, both uh, that all of those sort of day-to-day, -day, the cooking and the child rearing and the finances, I mean, that's that's absolutely instrumental to making uh, a religious movement function and seeing those as, as less worthy things to be spending one's time with, that's kind of, that has a, that carries a gender bias of its own, I think. But also on the other hand, that there was potentially this, uh, this inequality as well. And, and, and part of which was just caused by the roles of, of women in society at that time as well, who were more vulnerable to, uh, of course, to unwanted pregnancies and who didn't have access to um, to, to uh, safe and reliable contraceptives or abortion care or all of the things that we do today. So, so all of those things were um, were factors and. Uh, and yeah, so all of that being said, again, I mean, Crowley was very sort of um, all over the all over the spectrum in his views on women or really any given group in in his writings. Sometimes he writes things that are um, that are feminist, even by today's standards. Sometimes he writes things that by today's standards are hugely sexist. And uh, sometimes he writes things that are just um petty and uh, and mean and that's that's not only towards women that's towards any given group of people really yeah so so many different things um I don't think that Crowley I think it's important to distinguish between Crowley as uh, as a writer and 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 kind of uh, what was the lived reality of the early Thelemic movement where women have always been have always been important and uh, of course, I mean, looking at Palima today, that is very much still the case. But what we've uh, what we've also seen, as I've mentioned over the last few decades, is that uh, 
um, writers who are not men, who are women, who have been stepping into that space of producing and, and circulating writings. And uh, some of them around Babylon or the idea of the Scarlet Woman, but also around Thelemic um, magical practice in, in general and, and writings by women uh, achieving much wider circulation. And uh, many of these women writers also critique Crowley for uh, what they see as sexism in his uh, work and also look quite critically at the historical roles of of women in the Thelemic movement and kind of uh, develop their own understandings of uh, Thelemic magical practice from the perspective of uh, feminine embodied experience. So that's also something that's been happening in, uh, in recent uh, decades, but uh, definitely magnified in, in certain ways in the last few years. So I think that's important to say as well. Yeah, thank you for, for saying that. I think that there is, um, it is common, you know, this misconception that uh, Crowley and uh, Telema are misogynistic or against women or they just yeah. exploit women. So it's also, it's an interesting narrative because it's strangely, and I mean, that's not to minimize the fact that Crowley uh, was not always, I think, the most pleasant or easy of people to be around uh, for men or for women. Like he treated people quite appallingly at times. And that definitely goes for his male disciples as well. But this was especially like in the early 1920s when Crowley and Leah Hersig were running the Abbey of Thelema in Chapelou, Sicily. There was, um, in I think in 19, starting really in 1922, but then going forward, a lot of press circulating around uh, the evil, the evil Alistair Crowley and his poor women that he has uh, kind of lured into his uh, spider's web of, of black magic and perverse rights. And um, which also and, and kind of assumes that women are, you know, these feeble, gullible, gullible yes. feeble minded yes. idiots, basically. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and I mean, we have the writings of the women from that period. So we have, I mean, we have volumes and volumes of letters from, from Jane Wolfe, for instance, who was also in Sheffield during this period and was looking at the, this, uh, this media, this tabloid media portrayal and going, what? Uh, and, and basically like the Sunday Express in the UK writing that Crowley forced his women to prostitute themselves on the streets of Palermo and Jane Wolfe going, when, when, when did this happen exactly? Like it's, it's very, I mean, it's funny, but it's also, it's also dreadful and it parallels with, um, I mean, around that time, I think also connected to these kind of anxieties around the trans, uh, like the transforming roles of, of women, there was also the, these anxieties around like alternative religious and spiritual movements, which were often a forum for like challenging gender roles and, and where women often could like hold positions of power in various ways. So there was this paranoia around, um, around I, I mean, what we'd call new religious movements, but, but like in the, the 1920s, which, um, and, and which kind of masqueraded as concern for the women, but was in fact quite often, I think, rooted in this fear that women would not marry and not 
enter into um, having many children and being the subservient and modest wife, but would actually um, travel around the world and have, have lovers and be unruly and be um, shameless and, and, and radical in, in various ways. So it's, uh, I mean, a lot of it was quite, um, quite conservative in its way, I think, and still is. Yeah, definitely. I'd also like to touch on the um, uh, figure and role of the Scarlet Woman. Uh, where this, you know, what is the Scarlet Woman and what's the history of this role and how it developed over time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, of course, the Scarlet Woman, like Babylon, kind of originates in uh, as a as a concept. Uh, can be can be traced back to to the book of revelation in, in some ways and uh the scarlet a scarlet woman like in the in the 19th century that was also used as a negative euphemism for a prostitute or for a sex worker uh so like when crowley when crowley used that term it was in the context of a wider culture where that was very much a negative term again but the Scarlet Woman appears in, in Crowley's writings for the first time in the Book of the Law in Libra Religious, where she is described as the kind of um, female counterpart or, or consort or, or sort of um, the feminine, the feminine equivalent basically of, of the Beast 666, which was Crowley's uh, self-chosen uh, self title. And it's said that the Scarlet Woman is, is to help the beast in bringing about the new Aeon and bringing the, the teachings of the Book of the Law to, to the people, basically. And Crowley initially interpreted the, that title of the Scarlet Woman as uh, a reference to his then wife, Rose Kelly, who was with him in, uh, in Cairo, in Egypt, where they were on honeymoon. Uh, when the Book of the Law was um, received, and who also she also of course played an instrumental role in um, in the transmission of the Book of the Law by channeling instructions to Crowley for how to prepare and uh, telling him to to prepare to take dictation, uh, which he then then did, and which uh, resulted in that text. And she also. Um, amended the text in a few small instances. So she played a really important role. So Crowley initially saw that as a reference to Rose, uh, but their marriage disintegrated. So around 1909, um, when, when things had really sort of fallen apart between them, Crowley began uh, interpreting the Scarlet Woman instead as a transferable office, referring to um, referring to a, a woman who was his uh, his lover and his magical partner and who quite often would help him with various forms of uh, spirit communication or, or channeling messages from uh, from higher entities. So Rose Kelly uh, brought Crowley, uh, in Crowley's view, brought him into contact with the entity Iwas, who, uh, who dictated the Book of the Law. And uh, later, Scarlet Women also performed uh, similar, um, acted in, in similar ways and, and channeled communications from uh, from other higher beings, as Crowley saw it. So the one, uh, the first woman to hold the title of Scarlet Woman after Rose Kelly was Mary Diesty, who was a cosmetics entrepreneur and who became Crowley's lover and who um, 
who channeled in 1911, channeled uh, a series of messages from uh, the entity Abudis, and who, which resulted in the uh, the penning of Crowley's book four, uh, on where like Mary Dieste is is credited as as co-author for parts of it, and then a series of other women, including uh, but not limited to uh, Jean Foster, who was a poet and a journalist and a fashion model. Uh, who was Crowley's lover briefly in 1915. Uh, Roddy Minor, who was a suffragette, and also, of course, Leah Hersig, who helped co-found the, the Abbey of Philema in Sicily and who was a school teacher and uh, a teacher of music and who was uh, Crowley's, um, what, what I would argue to be in terms of her impact within Philema, Crowley's most influential uh, Scarlet Woman, maybe with the possible exception of Rose Kelly, but um, but Leia Hersey was definitely the one of Crowley Scarlet Women who had the longest and deepest level of, of magical practice and involvement of her own and kind of uh, involvement in coordinating the Thelemic movement and acting as Crowley's emissary and assisting him in 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 key writings and 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 she also did these things and channeled messages from from iowas but also from uh several of the other entities that the previous scholar women had brought Crowley into contact with so and that's the view that he kind of sticked to for the remainder of his life that the scarlet woman was a transferable office but it referred to one person at a time so Crowley kind of points to this succession of, of women who hold this uh, title. And he also interpreted that title, of course, as referring to one who incarnated the force of Babylon on Earth. So after Crowley, uh, we have Jack Parsons, who kind of conflates the Scarlet Women uh, or the Scarlet Woman and, and Babylon quite significantly. So he refers to this uh, this divine feminine uh, manifestation that he was trying to produce with with Hubbard and Cameron in 1946 as Babylon the Scarlet Woman. So that kind of becomes one person. Um, but in one way, he also kind of interprets it, as I've mentioned, as as uh, potentially also kind of the name of a force that could be incarnate in uh, in anyone and especially in liberated women. And then we have Kenneth Grant, who uh, again sort of uses the words uh, Scarlet Woman and Babylon interchangeably, but who was one of the earlier writers to interpret the Scarlet Woman uh, not as one historical figure, nor as necessarily just a transferable office, but, uh, but as a magical role that can be taken on by anyone who's uh, female-bodied, and who has the requisite level of magical skill. So Grant kind of rephrases the beast and the Scarlet Woman from these, uh, these historical individuals to uh, roles that can be taken on by any magical uh, coupling, provided that they're sufficiently uh, skilled. And that is uh, more close to the way that the term Scarlet Woman is used by uh, by Thelemic magical practitioners and, and others in the contemporary occult milieu today, uh, which is usually if, if people are talking about the role of the Scarlet Woman in something other than in a historical sense, it's usually in the sense of this is a role or this is kind of an archetype that can be assumed by uh, 
by any woman potentially or, or any person regardless of gender depending on uh, who you'd ask and which uh, some people interpret as a as a magical role or a sex magical role but and uh, others interpret as a more kind of uh, everyday thing in in the sense of representing being um liberated in your sexuality or being in touch with your sexual power and uh, and all of these things but uh definitely in the last few decades it's been very like in in contemporary writings on the scarlet definitely a pervasive view is that it is something that can be claimed for oneself it's not something that you need to have be bestowed upon you by another magical practitioner much as it was during Crowley's uh, during Crowley's lifetime because during that time within the Thelemic movement uh, it was definitely him who kind of appointed and deposed the Scarlet Women which we see very clearly in the case of Leah Hersig as well because she didn't she wasn't necessarily um, comfortable with being deposed from that role when Crowley suddenly decided that uh, he was going to take on a new Scarlet Woman so so that's something that's changed quite um quite significantly and why does it have to be a woman why does the scarlet woman <laughs> have to be a woman yeah um good question um i mean i think i mean i think in terms of crowley's magical practice uh that's just how he that's just how he envisioned it um for various reasons uh i mean he obviously had male lovers as well who were who were extremely important to him uh for longer or shorter periods from a magical point of view the 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 chief of them i think being uh victor b neuberg but um to my knowledge he never referred to any of them as scarlet men so i don't know it's it's uh it's just the way that he envisioned it i guess which could be linked to this idea of divine gender polarity and and the polarity of the masculine and the feminine divine which which plays a really important role in in the book of the law and in the lima and and that being represented on earth by by physical men and women um i think i mean the way that kenneth grant writes about this role it is uh, i mean he, he writes about it quite clearly in, in terms of a specific uh reproductive anatomy and um emphasizing that men and women have different roles in sexual magic and he links uh, vaginal fluids and semen to very different things in this kind of uh sex magical interplay so so in grant's writings i mean it's 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 really it's really an issue of of his his kind of take on um i don't know what we might call like magical chemistry or or, or just the way that these uh these polarities work in practice i think if we look at the contemporary esoteric milieu there are a lot of people who would say that it doesn't have to be a woman uh and that it's uh, that it's a role that can be claimed by by anyone regardless of gender and that it's important uh to to do so and uh i know like one of the one of the early essays written uh in that vein was uh by a female occultist named Linda Florio who 
has also worked a lot in the kind of Kenneth Grantian um, Typhonian tradition. And this essay, I think it was published for the first time actually in the early 1990s. So that's one of the really sort of early, within a volume called Faces of Babylon, published by uh, Black Moon and edited by Michelin Linden. So that was one of the, like these early sort of writings, early 1990s uh, volumes that I was talking about that are on Babylon, but written by female identified magical practitioners. And in that essay, Linda Felorio stresses that um well basically we talk about this as a feminine energy but the only thing that limits uh the energy is that any magical practitioner can access is their own skill and imagination and uh Felorio uses gender neutral pronouns um throughout that essay as I can recall and there's also another essay in the same uh volume which talks about sex uh sex work and sacred prostitution in relation to babylon and the scarlet woman which also uses uh gender neutral pronouns as i can recall so um so definitely lots of people that i've spoken to today would say that it doesn't necessarily doesn't have to be a woman it doesn't have to be limited to um to any gender I think um, what does, what is quite um, significant though, is I think that a lot of the time, this uh, this role of the Scarlet Woman and um, like the need to to identify with that role for in in one's own magical practice or one's own daily life, that need seems to be more sort of intensely felt among people who identify as women or who identify as femme I think partly because of um just the way that femininity is is conceptualized in uh society and the way that it has been more difficult for people who who identify as women or femme to um to to kind of inhabit that very sort of unrestrained uh sexual autonomy and and power so um so i will say that i have uh i've encountered very few cisgendered males who um who have like explicitly identified with the role of um of the scarlet woman but i've uh encountered plenty of people of uh of all other genders that do so i also think it's partly an issue of just who has uh who finds that role more meaningful and uh and and spiritually sort of transformative if mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah and perhaps um since it is linked to the figure of babylon and that kind of reclamation of femininity or a different mm -hmm. form of non-normative non you know uh conformist femininity perhaps yeah. that's also, that might also be play a role into uh, the scarlet woman being associated with femininity yes i mean there's definitely a very i mean uh and 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 this is very much what my book is about i i think is important to say as well that uh I mean, in in terms of of Crowley's writings as well. I mean, he doesn't he he links this like he links Babylon very clearly to femininity, but it's not always um, that doesn't always mean a particular reproductive anatomy in his writings because he sometimes kind of steps into that role and writes about himself as 
as the whore dressed in scarlet who's sexually receptive and uh takes in and, and kind of steps into a feminine persona. And in uh, Crowley's rendering of the abyss ordeal, I mean, Babylon has kind of this dual role. She's partly this thing that's external to the self, which the adept uh, sacrifices their individuality in order to unite with, but she's also the emblem of the spiritual magical attitude that's necessary to survive the abyss. So in, in one way, crossing the abyss successfully is kind of uh, in Crowley's writings an emulation of that sort of feminine spiritual standpoint and he also he also expresses this in the book of lies from uh, from 1911 where he says that I think uh, I think I'm quoting the uh, the bro the brothers of AA are women the aspirants to AA are men and he's talking about the uh, the magical order AA and the the brothers of AA in this um, in this phrase represent the people who are like fully uh, who have fully uh, undergone the crossing of the abyss and emerged on the other side, claiming the degree of masters of the temple. And uh, of course, he's not talking about physical reproductive parts here. He's talking about how those who have undergone the crossing of the abyss have in one sense undergone kind of a, a feminization at the spiritual level by embracing this uh, this receptive, um, this receptive standpoint. So, so there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely this link to femininity, but uh, I think it's also important to say that womanhood and, and femininity are not, um, not the exact same thing. Uh, although of course they're, they're linked, but, um, but yeah, I think that's important. Yeah. Thank you very much, very much for clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now I'd like to move on to uh, a few questions from my patrons. Mm -hmm. The first two are from Andrew. So the first one is, Telema gave birth to a number of daughter religions, but how is Telema itself doing in the modern age? Is there a thriving movement mostly hidden from the public eye, or has it fractured into subgroups of which none is gaining a foothold amongst the myriad forms of 21st century paganism? Oh, it's uh, no, definitely, definitely still around and, and not very hidden, I think. So the, the two orders, the two magical orders um, that Crowley was... Uh, that Crowley uh, utilized during his lifetime to promulgate Thelema, very much still around. The largest of them is Ordo Templi Orientis, which, uh, um, yeah, so Crowley became the British head of, of that in 1912 and eventually in the 1920s became the international head of it. And it, uh, it was around uh, for the rest of, of Crowley's life. It led a more or less dormant uh, existence for uh, for a couple of uh, a couple of decades after Crowley's death, and was uh, reconstituted in the United States in 1969 by Grady McMurtry, aided by uh, a few of the people that I mentioned earlier, so Helen Parson Smith and uh, Phyllis Seckler of the old Agape Lodge, among a few other. Uh, important figures as well. And since then, essentially, OTO has kind of progressively grown uh, slowly and steadily. So OTO today has about 4,000 members globally. 
and has been very successful in uh, acquiring the uh, the copyrights to Crowley's uh, works and, and putting out editions of, of Crowley's works also, and um, has uh, has a presence in uh, on all continents, basically, uh, if not in all countries. And is I mean so four thousand people that is uh, much larger than than OTO was during at any point during Crowley's uh, lifetime and and actually makes it one of the larger more formalized occult orders that are in existence today. Uh, so that's definitely very much still around. Crowley's AA is still around as well, though there's more. Um, there's a few different groups that all claim descent from uh, Crowley's AA, and uh, that's that's a whole um, that's a whole other issue. But that's definitely still around as well, and is not uh, as is not as large as OTO, and uh, tends to tends to be more personalized and more private. So OTO is more of a social order and uh, which uh, actually has does a lot of its activities publicly. So one of the things that the OTO does is organize Crowley's Gnostic Catholic Mass, which is celebrated uh, in non-COVID times uh, every week somewhere in the world. And most larger OTO bodies um, do it at least monthly. So, and, and do a lot of, uh, reading groups and classes and workshops and social gatherings and, and other things uh publicly so so not at all hidden really uh the the things that are hidden from the public in terms of oto one of the big things at least is of course the initiation rituals which are secret um but yeah then like oto and aa are definitely the 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 big two in terms of um polemic groups in the present day esoteric landscape. There are other uh, smaller splinter groups as well and, and new groups that have been formed of uh, varying varying sizes, some of which are a handful of people, some are maybe a few dozen people. And uh, then there are, of course, uh, as the, uh, the, the, the question asking patron brings up, of course, there are a lot of what we could call daughter religions or, or kind of post-thalemic groups as well, or or solitary practitioners or, or more or less loosely organized groups of practitioners who draw very strongly on, on some of Crowley's ideas and some aspects of thalemic tradition, but who are not kind of within uh, orthodox thalema, as we'd say. But uh, but yes, so so definitely alive and uh, and vibrant in uh, in a lot of ways. Thank you for answering that. I guess I was thinking um, of the uh, of Italy, uh, which mm -hmm. is where mm -hmm. I do my field work, and I was you know um, thinking that the OTO is very is very much live and vibrant, yeah. as you said. Oh yeah, as well. yeah, definitely. No, definitely uh, very vibrant in Italy. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. And the second question is that that Andrew is asking is uh, looking into Telema. I came across Nima and and Hidna. I'm not sure who, if I'm pronouncing her right. Uh, and her math magic, which she developed from Crowley's ideas. Some writers laud her 
as being very influential in esoteric circles. Why have most like me never heard of her? Well, um, well, yes, no, absolutely. She she has been very influential. So Nima is is one of those people that I might say is is kind of. Uh, one one way that she could be described is in terms of this kind of post-thelemic landscape of uh, of esoteric uh, practitioners and, and authors and teachers. So she was very, she was very, she's been very influential, and she was uh, she 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 inspired Kenneth Grant, but she was also uh, she was also herself inspired by Grant's work in uh, in several ways. So she has been, I think, extremely formative in in inspiring again kind of uh forms of esoteric practice and uh engagement that are kind of broadly informed by Crowley and Thelema but uh take it in uh a novel in a novel direction so she's been she has been very influential and I think also definitely as as what we've been talking about as as a female author who's been very sort of um prolific and uh also active as as a teacher and as uh as an initiator i think uh she's she's been extremely important um can't speak to why uh the, the person asking the question hasn't heard of her i think um i think that what what he meant is that um lots of people who are part of the practicing community Mm -hmm. don't really know of her so he was wondering why her outreach hasn't uh, been as influential among contemporary practitioners that are interested in or practice magic well i mean if if we're talking about crowley and Thelema, crowley does tend to sort of dwarf anyone else so because i mean he was so prolific and he's such a a, a big sort of um author and, and personality in, in this milieu as well. But uh, quite honestly, I'm, I'm not sure when the last time was that I walked into, uh, if not an occult section of a regular bookshop, but at least uh, an occult or, or pagan bookshop that doesn't have a copy of, of Nima's Mark Magic. It's, it's usually there among among the staples. So I, um, I would argue that uh, a lot of people have heard of her. But um, I mean, of course, we could also like we could I don't know if it's if it's true in, in the case of Nima, but uh, I mean, we could also bring bring gender into the discussion and, and say that as uh, as progressive as the occult milieu has often been in terms of um, there being space for for women as as leaders and, and organizers and initiating figures um the occult community definitely has not been immune to um these kind of uh, broader societal structures where uh women are not credited to the same extent for their work so um i don't know if that is uh if the case is the case with with nima but i know it's definitely been the case with a lot of other um female occult writers who who have been very influential so yeah mm. Then we have one final question from Vocatus. 
and he's asking, I would be interested to know if there is connection with Pistis Sophia, and also is there any connection with the Babylonian goddess narrative and the biblical character in Ezekiel? Right. Uh, so, so yes. So, so this kind of goes back to my previous point about methodological agnosticism. I'm not sure um, of the viewpoint from which this person is asking their questions. So, if we're looking at whether or not these entities are the same, I mean that falls that falls outside of um, what I'd be comfortable answering as as a scholar. If we're looking at verifiable chains of, of textual transmission or the transmission of ideas the the connection to ezekiel would be such that definitely the book of ezekiel was one of the largest sources of biblical inspiration for the book of revelations there are very clear um, parallels in in language and in uh in imagery um i also I'm also fairly sure that Crowley uh, studied the book of Ezekiel quite uh, quite keenly. I know I found a passage in um, in uh, uh, Crowley's The Vision and the Voice, which is the visionary record of his uh, Enochian experiments of 1909. And I, I found, I believe, if I recall correctly, I know I found a passage there which uh, refers to Babylon and which has uh, very clear linguistic parallels to the book of Ezekiel with imagery that does not appear in the book of, um, of in the book of Revelation. So, so yes, uh, like in, in terms of, uh, of, of direct textual influence, I would say that there is that link. Uh, in terms of the Pistis Sophia, I'm actually, um, I'm actually not sure. Um, that's uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I'll have mm. to look into that. That's really. Mm. What if people want to reach out to you? Uh, is there any any place where people can find your work? <laughs> yes. So yeah. So the uh, the easiest way to find my academic publications is at my academia.edu profile. If you Google my name, that comes up um, very very quickly. On Facebook, I have a Facebook page called the Thelemic Women's History Project, which is uh, centered on my the research that I've been doing for my postdoc, which has explored some of the women in uh, in Thelema in the 20th century, one of them uh, being Leah Hersig, another one of them being Jane Wolfe, whom we've talked about. And uh, I'm also on uh, Instagram and on Twitter, uh, slightly more active on Instagram, both under the handle doctor underscore scarlet woman. And uh, yes, so you're very welcome to follow me there and to uh, reach out if uh, there are questions about anything. So thank you so much, Manon, for um, <laughs> doing this interview. I found it very fascinating. It was quite thought-provoking, and there were a few points that I will have to sort of revisit and explore further in my own research as well. Well, thank you, thank you, Angela. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm just delighted to be on your channel and. Um, Thank you also to those who have uh, listened to this. <laughs>
indeed let us know in the comments what you think about what we said <laughs> so this is it for today's video what do you think about what we discussed let me know in the comment section you know that i always look forward to reading what you think and of course if you did like this video don't forget to smash the like button subscribe to the channel activate the notification bell so that you will never miss a new upload from me share my content around it really helps us grow and thank you so much for being here and stay tuned for all the academic fun bye for now <laughs>